random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome everyone to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast, but not just limited to that. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string in beautiful New Jersey, New Jersey, we are joined with Fabian Niciesa. Fabian, welcome back to the program. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me back. And on the first full long day of the year, summer, June 21st, a big day in the Nicieza household, or at least in your own mind, the self-made widow. Yes, I honestly thought that you were going to say that, <laughs> that it was a big day in my household because I got an extra hour sleep because our new dog didn't wake me up at 5.30, 5.15 in the morning. Um, <laughs> I, I, got to, I got to let her out at 6.30 in the morning, and she stayed quiet until yeah, then. But it was pretty much a miracle. Even, um, but even before we started talking, we didn't know that. So if we did, then that would be kind of weird. Yeah, it would. It really would be weird. Prescient almost. And possibly almost. Woodward and Bernstinian in your researching of my current life. Since <laughs> like I just got the dog on Sunday, <laughs> I would have been very like scared that you guys were tracking me so carefully. Congratulations! Um, y- thank you. Yes, we were looking to adopt a dog for a little while, and um, we a few a few that we were interested in fell through, and then this uh, Labradoodle Terrier mix came up in a in a in a Philly rescue shelter. And we applied for her, and, and, and we, they picked us to adopt her. There were a few people who applied, um, and we got her on Sunday. She, she's she's, she's going to be a good dog. She needs a little bit of work. Uh, she, she was actually straying in the wild for like three months. Mm. Um, but clearly she had lived, she had been under someone's ownership because she knows all the basic commands that a dog should know that's had puppy training, you know. Um, and, and, and she's about a year, year and a month old. Um, so they think that she was abandoned when she was around seven or eight months old and was living in the Philly streets for three months. Um, so, so she's a little skittish. She's nervous about a lot of things, but she's really warming up, uh, every day. She's just a little more relaxed and casual and, and, and feeling comfortable with herself. Now I just got to get her to hold it in and sleep a little bit longer because <laughs> I don't like getting up at five thirty in the morning. Um, so other than that, though, yes, today is the day that my second novel, uh, The Self-Made Widow, comes out. It is a sequel to Suburban Dicks, which came out last year from Putnam. Um, and it is a continuation of my sarcastic suburban mystery series starring sleuth savant Andrea Stern and anally, aggressively annoying reporter Kenny Lee. Okay. Well, I don't think you're going to say too much more. I didn't even realize it was a sequel, so that's a... How did you not know that? I didn't know it was going to be continued. I just, It's another book by the same author, and there you are. So we'll I, start from the he beginning. He didn't even now. know about Remy, Peter, so how's he going to know about the sequel? <laughs> Remy's the, Remy is the dog's name. 
um, so yes, it is. It is. Um, yeah, it is a sequel. I wanted to do it as a series. I was hoping that it would become an ongoing series, and it's still very well made. Um, and and I have several books in mind for the characters, um, and and would like the opportunity to do so. But um, it, it made a lot of sense for me to write a follow up to the first book because. I felt I left the characters at a place where there was still a lot that can be done with them. Um, and I, I, I feel just as strongly about that after the second book because it shakes up each of their status quos quite a bit by the, by the end of the book. Well, I know that from having had you on previously and talking about Suburban Dicks and the parameters that you have to work under and, you know, in the lines, so to speak, we're talking about the same uh, length on both books. Yeah, yeah. The, um, I think this book is 380 pages, 300, something like that. Um, and, and, and yeah, the, there's, um, there's like a working con- parameter that the publishers want for the different genres they publish in and the audiences that tend to pick up those books. So I, I, writing the second book was tremendously easier for me than writing the first book because I was just writing blind in the first book and hunting and pecking and just writing like a, you know, like just like a like a dog with its tongue hanging out, just hitting the keys um, without any real sense of 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 what my limitations were or expectations were. So I, I talked to you guys last time that I had to cut a lot of manuscript pages out of the first book. Um, like 150 pages of, of mostly garbage um, got cut from that manuscript. Um, this manuscript, I submitted, I think, a 406-page manuscript knowing we had to get it to about 380, 385. And I knew exactly what we were going to cut because I almost purposefully fed it into the manuscript knowing that that's what my editor was going to ask me to cut. And indeed, it was pretty much exactly what he asked me to cut. So I was able to lop off 16, 20 pages without a problem. Um, there's a series of flashbacks for each of the two main characters, uh, three flashbacks for each of them, uh, to, to their childhood and to their parents' marriages, because the, theme, the themes of the book is about suburban complacency and marriage and, and the, like the, just the numbingly stultifying repetition, uh, Groundhog Day existence that you can succumb to uh, when you're living in the suburbs. Um, and, and, and I needed to reflect on how the characters thought of their lives today based on the kind of household they grew up in. Um, so I flashed back to Andy and Kenny's uh, childhood and, and even their uh, Andy's early marriage to Jeff and stuff like that. Um, and and I, each scene that I did was probably six to eight pages, and I, I, I knew I could get them all down to two to three pages, so that's what I did. And, and it worked out fine. But, like, once I made those cuts, my, my manuscript length was almost perfect. So, like I said, um, I, I don't tend to put my hand on the stove too often once I've learned that it burns you. So I, I learned a lot writing the first book. It made writing the second book a lot easier for me. Well, not only have you built the foundation with the first one, but and it's always uh, nice to know and to hear that, if you have more than you need, you can trim off the excess and, you know, not lose content and thought processes and so on. Then, then the opposite, not having enough and having to try and formulate and put together, you know, more stuff and have it make sense. Yeah, there's that. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I'm sure it happens to authors. I don't know because I haven't done enough to have that experience. Uh, I, I sincerely doubt that I'd ever rarely have 
not enough to say <laughs> because I tend to I tend to babble on quite a bit. Just just on a dialogue riff alone, I could just like you know type out three four pages of people bantering. So um, it, 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 it's not a it's not a situation I, I expect I'd ever have to like run into in the future. Um, although it would be interesting if I did and, and needed to add a bunch of stuff. But the way I like to work, and I think I hope it's the way most authors work. I don't even know because I'm not that privy to the book author world. Um, I, I type up a pretty tight chapter by chapter outline. Um, it doesn't include everything that's going to happen in the chapter because a lot of that is just by feel and flow. Um, but what it does is it breaks down the basic elements of, of how the chapter begins, how the chapter ends, and what you need to do in that chapter to get from point A to point B, you know, and, and, and build on that, each thing they learn, because they're kind of, they're kind of procedurals in a way, mysteries. It's, it's an unfolding of information, uh, the way I write them, based on the characters going out there to track that information down. So there's a little bit of a linear nature to, to the structure of what you're doing, um, which means you need that that helps you with your pacing because you know how you know how you need to pace it um, on a per chapter basis to keep that ball rolling in an interesting way you know um, so, so I, I I just um I, my editor knew what the story was he knew what was going to be happening in it he, he, he you know we actually tweaked a few things after my first draft because um, we, we wanted to add a little bit here and there to one of the supporting characters, um, you know, situations in the book. And we wanted to complicate another character's um, motivations in the book. So we, we tweaked, we, we did add a little bit here and there, but we're talking about paragraphs, a page of, of, of flushing of, of something out that, that was going to pay off later, stuff like that. Um, and again, it's only the second book I've ever finished that I, you know, the, from start to finish that I've written. So I am quite a novice at the process. Um, so I can't speak as if I'm any kind of authority on it. Uh, I just know what's become comfortable for me so far. Um, so when I get to write a third book, whether it's in a Suburban Dick series or not, it, I'll have learned and grown even more in terms of understanding what, what I have to do to, to get the job done right. Well, in terms of new and, and adding, The Self-Made Widow, I would assume, does introduce some newer characters that we didn't know about in the first book. Can you touch on a little bit who they might be? Yeah, um, yeah the, the, the book's mystery centers around Andrea's friend who was introduced in the first book. She's one of the, the members of the social circle she has called that she called the cellulitists. Uh, they don't know she calls them that. Um, one of her friend's um, husband passes away uh, of a heart attack in the middle of the night, and he's only 43 years old. And Andrea is a little bit surprised to learn that he had a pre-existing heart condition. And many of her friends knew that, and her own husband knew it, but she didn't know it. Um, and that automatically irks her a bit. And, and she starts to smell possibly some stinky fish she's not sure she just doesn't trust that her friend is acting the way she would expect someone to act whose husband died even though you know molly good may have expected at any point that her husband Derek good could have died there's a difference between knowing you might die and then and then actually having to confront the reality that it that it's happened you know um so so she starts 
to smell trouble. And the real gist of the story is, is, is there really trouble there, or is she making something up because she needs to be doing this? Um, and and one of the main additions to the cast is Andrea's newborn child at the end of uh, the first book. Her water breaks at the end of the first book. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. And um, and in the second book, her 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 new child is 11 months old. Um, and instead of having a kid in tow inside her belly for an entire book, like I did the first time around, now she's got a kid in tow the entire book on her arm. Uh, and anybody who's been a parent and knows what it's like to have a, a, by the time your second kid is born, you're a lot more comfortable slinging that sucker around on, on the crook of your arm and wow. doing six things at the same time with one arm while you got your baby in the other arm. Um, Andrea's on her fifth kid, so believe me, she, she can... She can weave a tapestry with her toes at this point and still hold that kid in her arm properly. Um, so so, so uh, I don't want to give away the sex of the kid, and I don't want to give away the name of the kid. I want readers who, who read the book to just get it that way. Um, but but the, baby, the baby is a supporting cast member because it's there pretty much every step of the way during the investigation. Um, we're also going to be introduced to several new characters uh, in Manhattan because Kenny, the reporter, is now working with a production company uh, that was hired um, that made that basically optioned his his nonfiction book based on the first book. <laughs> so the fictional book was Suburban Dicks, and in the fictional book story world, Kenny Lee has written a nonfiction book called Suburban Secrets. That book, Suburban Secrets, is going to be coming out soon during the course of the second book, The Self-Made Widow, but it has already been optioned as a documentary uh, by, by Netflix. So the LLC that Netflix has, uh, you know, production company, has offices in Manhattan, and he's working for the documentary. Uh, so we introduce a producer uh, named Satara. We introduce uh, a, a private investigator that Netflix um, hires to work with the documentary crew, um, uh, and, and she's a major. Her name's Shelby Taylor. She's a major part of the storyline too. Uh, Kenny's friend, the cameraman, it is his cameraman Jimmy, who was in the first book working for Verizon, and he was the guy who had the cable uh, echo locator and found a lot of the bones in the backyards for Kenny and Andrea. He's now working with Kenny in Manhattan as his cameraman and basically his, his overall assistant. Um, so I got a little crew going on in Manhattan because I wanted to establish that Kenny in 11 months has really kind of reclaimed himself and his life. Um, and, and it just so happens that since Derek Good, the, the guy who passes away with a heart attack, is a lawyer whose offices are in Manhattan, that makes it easy for that part of the investigation to be taken over by, the, by Kenny and Jimmy. Um, and meanwhile, Andrea is in New Jersey investigating her suspicions about Molly, uh, so it's like, once again, it's a bit of a two-pronged investigative approach, but it, now it's taking place in uh, one, one side of the coin is Western or Plainsboro in New Jersey. The other side of the coin is in Manhattan. And the time frame, I, I'm pretty sure you said it with the first book. What would you say is the time frame for this? What time period? It's 11 months later. You, no, uh, right. The, that answered that question in terms of first to second book, the time gap and all. But, I mean, set in the, the 60s or the 50s, uh, 
No, no, this all this is all present day, right? Contemporary. Okay. It's it, yeah, it's a it's a it's an amorphous present day. Uh, it's a it's a it's a, an adjacent reality where the pandemic doesn't exist. Um, because it, that that bores the living hell out of me as a writer to have to deal with that kind of crap. Yeah, I should have um, retracted so, that because when you said Netflix, I should. Oh yeah, it's it's now, kind of thing. Yeah, no, and um and and uh, yeah, it's all it's all present tense, and, and um and all of them would be if I if I get to do more because I would just want to track the growth of the characters. I, I want you to see her kids growing up. I, I I you know I Ruth her oldest daughter Ruth is now in six is now in fifth grade um or is it sixth grade it might be sixth grade and she 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 actually becomes a little bit of a part of the investigation because she's classmates with the the son of of molly good and derek good uh derek passed away so basically andrea kind of asks her daughter could you maybe like pry a little information loose out of henry good and and, and see if there was bad stuff happening in that household or in that in that relationship in that marriage and ruth is really kind of taken aback by it because it feels queasy to her but by the same token she's kind of excited by it because the thought that that you know she she might be a part of her mother's murder investigation is kind of cool to her now so now in regards to going back over to the previous book you said you had about you know over 100 pages worth of copy for the manuscript how much of that did you end up utilizing maybe later on for this new book nothing at all nothing at all no it was all all trash no i i got i got a full i got a doc i got a cut doc somewhere in my laptop yeah. like a, a folder with cut cut stuff out of it um or at the very least I, I don't have that i'm sorry i have i have the versions of the manuscript as we went along but we're talking about it was a year and a half between you know when i finished the first manuscript a year later it was roughly when a publisher bought it and i had already done a lot of cutting uh based on a freelance editor's recommendations that i hired right. and then based on my agent's recommendation because when I when I finished my first draft of the manuscript um, that had already had about 50 pages cut from the original so I think I went from 550 to 500 then I gave it to my agent and his team read it and to represent me he they had a whole bunch of suggestions on how they thought they could make the book better but more importantly sellable right. um, <laughs> more sellable because they thought it was sellable to begin with or else they wouldn't have been looking at it um, and the truth of the matter is many of their recommendations were really good so I incorporated probably 80 90 percent of their recommendations at the same time as I was cutting a lot of stuff too so I got that 500-page manuscript now down to about 425 from its original 550. Then that's when the publishers looked at it and the publishers bid on it, knowing that whoever bought it was going to want to make me cut more. So Putnam bought it. We, we, we went with Putnam when we had the, the publishers, um, basically an auction between publishers, which sounds so pretentious to say, but it's exactly what happened, and it was pretty freaking cool. Um, so, so we, so Pub Putnam, Putnam became the publisher, and the editor at Putnam said, "Okay, here's my recommendations on how we can cut this down to about 390." Um, and and I said, "Okay," so I had to cut again and get it down to about 390. So every iteration of that, I have the previous version of the manuscript. I got to be honest, I haven't looked at them in three years, you know, um, I don't need to, because to me, to me, what, 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 
what goes out into the world is what exists. I worry a lot less about what could have, should have been. I'm not, you, Peter knows this, I'm not the writer who says, well, my plans for XYZ comic book were this until I got fired. You know, it's like, and, and you, you make a living out of telling people stories that you never got to tell. That's not really my shtick. Um, so, so the pages that got cut, I, I did cut some bone. I know that. I, I did cut some stuff out of the manuscripts that it kind of hurt to cut um, because I liked it. It was mostly flushing out of their pasts and things like that. Um, and I didn't repurpose any of that, but I did get to explore a little more of that in the second book. And even then I cut a whole bunch of stuff of, of the past out. If I get to do a third book, because I know what the murder mystery is for the third book, it, it does deal a lot with Andrea's past. So I would get to do, uh, I would ultimately I'd get to do a lot of the things I, I, I took out of the first two books uh, and then some because the third book would, the, the entire story is predicated on her past. Um, so, so, so that would, you know, I, I'd, I'd end up, um, I, I'd end up getting even, I'd end up making up for anything I lost that I, that I was personally coy and say about that I liked, you know? Um, so, so we'll see what happens. It, it's not, I don't know. I'm not so precious about that stuff anymore. If, if taking X, Y, Z out makes it better or makes it more likely that someone will read it, then I'm fine with that. Take it out. Let's, you know, let's, let's do it and let's move on, you know? Mm -hmm. With this, by the time we get to the end of the about 380 pages of The Self-Made Widow, have we progressed in time about another year? No, no. The, the mystery itself only takes, um, takes course over a span of uh, a couple months. Um, the, the suburban dicks took, took place over the course, August to October, um, of that year. This takes place, uh, September to, I believe, uh, I believe it roughly ends around Halloween. So from, from early to mid September to the end of October is, is the time frame for the story. It's not a year long murder mystery. Mm. Gee whiz. That, oh. uh, that would be, that, I wouldn't, I don't know. What, I, she wouldn't be much of a sleuth savant if it took her a year to solve a crime, I guess. I don't know. Um, but, but I, I you know, they, they are snippets in time for the characters. Um, so that, that also gives me a little bit of control over how I want to progress their timelines. You know what I mean? If, if, if I want the third book could be set six months after the end of the second book, but the fourth book could be set a year and a half later if I want, you know, um, it, it all depends on, on what the story that I want to tell is how it, and how it breaks down into where the characters need to be at that point, uh, in their lives. Like, for, and, and as an example, if I get a chance to do a fourth book, I need Ruth to be in a freshman in high school for that. Okay. Because of the kind of story it's going to be, I would need her to be a freshman in high school for that. Well, she's like in sixth grade in this book. So even if I do a third book in the middle, there's clearly going to be a little bit of a jump at some point where we skip one more year, you know? Um, and, and the other side of the coin is I, I want the kids to grow up because I think that makes for more interesting character interaction and, and fodder. I think it, it creates a real investment on the part of the readers if they watch characters grow and evolve and change. I'm not a big fan of book series where the character is roughly the same by book 20 as they were in book one. And I've read, I've read several now that are like that. And, and as much as I respect the craft and the writers who are doing it, I feel as a reader, a little bored by the lack of 
growth and progression on the parts of the characters that I'm reading about, you know, and I don't want to name names because some of these are big time authors writing big time series. But um, I, I maybe maybe it's the stagnancy of having written comics for so long because you can only progress your character so much at Marvel or DC. Maybe maybe what I'm doing is like an answer to that. It's like my rebellion against having written for 30 years under those kinds of limitations that I'm just as interested in writing about Andrea's daughter, Ruth, when she's in college as I am about writing her, her when she's in fifth grade. And I like the thought of, of tracking that progression for the character. Well, see, this is why I don't write, because then uh, the time gap thing wouldn't have even been a question. So the best place to put that is in between the books, um, although maybe in some cases, depending on what the context of any author's writing is, there could be a time forwarding or flashing back, whatever the, whatever the case might be. So, all right. Yeah, you get, look, you can, you can cheat a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can fudge a lot of things. You, you just got to try not to contradict your timeline, you know, but, but you, can, you can cheat. You can say this takes place between here and here if you wanted to. Comics do it all the time. They just contradict themselves because their story, shared story worlds with so many characters and so many different writers. I'm writing my own story world. This is my own timeline. No one else is writing suburban dick stories, you know? Um, so uh, even then, it's easy to lose control of your timeline because you become like you become lazy or you don't pay attention or you you write something you don't realize that it contradicts something you might have wrote you know a year or two years ago you know um so 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 it's a matter of keeping track of your own timeline and, and trying to give the readers the information they need to see how it fits i mean if you read suburban dicks you're gonna have no trouble following this timeline because you know how suburban dicks ended and you know that we are x amount of months later because she's carrying a baby who is x amount of months old you know what i mean mm-hmm. so you got to just you got to just try to um you got to try to make make it easy for your reader to follow where where your characters are at any given moment and the other side of the coin is a lot of people are going to read some self-made widow without ever having read suburban dicks that was something i needed to learn about um I, I know in my first draft of my manuscript, my editor and I talked uh, because I was giving away too much information about what happened in Suburban Dicks. And to me, I was just writing characters who knew what happened in Suburban Dicks because they lived it. Mm-hmm. But the audience might not know. So I can't give away who the ultimate killer was in the first book because it might prevent a reader from being curious to read that first book if they already know who the murderer was. You know what I mean? Sure. So I really had to figure out how to finagle that, um, provide information about what happened previously without taking away from the experience of, of, of reading previous, a previous book. And, and you know, I, I can only gauge it by what readers say, and, like, I'm paying attention to the Goodreads site to see what reader reviews are like. And, and so far, for the most part, the majority of the people are saying that, they were able to read this book without having read the first one very easily and comfortably that I provided them all the info they needed. Many of them are even saying they went and read the first one after this, they read self-made widow. And many of them are saying they stopped reading self-made widow because they realized there was a previous one and they wanted to read that. So they went and read first uh, suburban dicks before going back to the self-made widow. Um, That would be me because I'm a little OCD about reading series in order. 
but not all readers are. My, my wife really isn't, um, and I know a lot of a lot of readers who aren't that way. They can pick up, you know, book eight in a series and and have curiosity about what happened before and eventually read what happened before, but they don't necessarily need to read them in linear fashion. Wait, someone involved in comics has to read things in sequential order? Yeah, you know, you're right. You know, that's it. That's totally <laughs> it. It's it's kind of sad. I, I think, uh, and that's really, what's really odd is that there's very few series pre-1972 or three that I ever started with issue number one. I didn't start reading Spider-Man Fantastic Four Avengers with issue number one, you know, obviously, because I wasn't even born when Fantastic Four number one came out. Um, so, so I certainly had no problem going back and filling in my knowledge base and information base. But but once I started to be able to get in, in on things on the ground floor, I liked being there from the beginning, you know, Um uh, even if it meant like a new creative team taking over an ongoing series. Like, uh, I was there from the beginning when Walt Simonson took over Thor. I was there from the beginning when Frank Miller started drawing Daredevil with Roger McKenzie writing it. I, you know, I, I felt good about myself for being there at the beginning. I think that started when Jim Starlin took over Captain Marvel in the early 70s. I was there for his very first issue because I saw it on the 7-Eleven rack, and I loved how it looked. Um, so so that yeah, there is... There is that, that, that nerdy, collectible, linear mentality to me. Um, and, and ironically, also, it's not surprising because the companies have done such a bad job of maintaining that, that numerical flow to their series that I've lost that interest in comics. You know, comics have lost me as a monthly reader because they're no longer, I don't know, I no longer feel like they're adhering to that legacy of, of one new, you know, one sequentially numbered issue every single month moving forward. So I still read them, but I read them in trade paperback form now, usually months or years after they've come out. I no longer worry about getting Fantastic Four number 750 because there is no real Fantastic Four number 750. They've had, you know, 20 volume, volume six number ones, you know, um, so, so I, I, as a reader of book series, yes, I am that way. I, I can't read the Jack Jack Reacher's fifth novel until I've read his first four novels. You know, I, I feel like they're going to lose Eddie again if they move the corner box to the bottom of the page again. Oh, Just, don't you know, ever! Like, <laughs> <sighs> Tell you what, that was a that was a real bone of contention, by the way, and it's my favorite Eddie thing ever. Wait, the corner box can't be moved to the bottom left corner because that's where the UPC code is. They found a way. <laughs> Did they? Yeah, uh, all new, uh, all new, all different, or all new, whatever, in 2013 or 14. So. Well, 2014 was all all now, all now. Or now, I don't know when they moved. When they you're put the, the when, wrong, yeah, was, you got, this, you're, you're gonna you're gonna totally lose me if you're gonna no. start going with Marvel's marketing campaign no. as the foundation for no. their relaunches. No. no, Fabian, the deceit of this this the uh, monstrosity, the seed, the beginning, oh, oh. the genesis, the origin of this this side tangent is the fact that putting the issue number on the bottom across the bottom somewhere. Just really, you know, but buttered Eddie, my it is, biscuit. It is the deceit because you were believing it was going to be in the corner, and it's not. It's at the bottom. Yeah, it's true. That well, is your true deceit. Then, then let's talk about when you put the barcode on the back of the comic book. Sometimes with the price, what the hell? You can't do that though. No, no. And well, you couldn't do that in the past because there was always paid advertising on the back cover. I have no idea if there is now. 
the the, oh, the UPC. The, the UPC traditionally went where it had to go because that's what the that's what the Universal Scanning Code Company demanded of it, and the retail base demanded of it because it needed to be easy to scan, and that that just meant sliding the front cover right over the scanner, um, or, or holding the handheld thing. Uh, and we're looking at the late '70s, early '80s, I think, when that started. You know, and and we 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 never liked having that UPC there for the direct market books, but they couldn't. They couldn't. Do you remember in the direct market books, you had a little slug that had like a Captain America head on it yep. or something like that. It's because it's because that was a direct market book which wasn't using the UPCs. But now everything is using the UPCs. Eventually, all the retailers finally got on board with cash, you know, electronic cash registers. That in and of itself was a wonderful challenge in the mid '80s. Believe it or not, what? retailers not not wanting to have electronic cash registers because they were afraid Marvel would control their sales. I appreciate that you remember the uh, the Captain America one from all the times you've signed New Mutants '98 because that is that little Captain America head with the uh, I think 50th anniversary is burned into my brain like forever. Oh, is that? I, 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 Peter, I got to be honest with you. I, I guess it is. I, that I don't even I don't even remember it from that standpoint. I just remembered it from the standpoint of, of what we what we had available to us and and what most. Um, most editors preferred to use and stuff like that. I always wanted to do different things in that in that corner box, but uh, everybody oh, until I became an editor. Once I became an editor, I didn't want to do that because it was a pain in the ass. <laughs> so it was easy for the non-editor to say, "Wouldn't it be great if we did blah 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 here?" You know, I wanted to do ad slugs there, and and I tried to I tried to get ad slugs to be done on, in those corner boxes, and the editors the editors uh, did not want to do that. So I didn't I didn't make it much of a fight when I was Marvel. Advertising manager because I didn't want I didn't want to be doing something that the editors were not going to be happy about. You know, they thought it would be cheesy and take away from the the integrity of the comics, and they were 100 percent right. But I didn't care because I wanted to sell more comics. That was my job. See, and I only remember the Spider-Man face head on the, those corners. Oh, the '80s one. Yeah, yeah. I'm going through. Yeah, us. no. But, they, yeah, I think editors had the choice to tell you the truth whether they wanted to put Cap or Spider-Man or anything else. For that matter, and there were different editors that did different things. Um, I, I know some people did a couple jokey ones in the in the the corner box and stuff like that, but ultimately it did detract from the covers when you did that kind of thing. You know, mm. you're, you're looking at you're looking at a, a cute little caricature or sketch in the UPC box, but you really should be looking at the cover and the logo and, and that. You know, that should be the selling point of the book. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. Well, speaking of covers... The self-made widow, we, we, that is, Peter and I, did get some advance through the telephonic communication that is the phone of what I guess is either the cover of the book or the inside cover. Telephonic? And maybe, and maybe without 
Well, you say tin can and string all the that's, gosh darn time. That's true. By golly. We are. We have what, and, and, and if you can elaborate a little more about it, but we have a, a white picket fence. We have a house in the background, or several houses, actually, and what appears to be a wedding cake with a bride and a tombstone on them. Yes, we um, we wanted to maintain the motif of uh, a Saul Bass designed suburban noir. Um, the 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 book cover designer and the interior designers at Putnam are great. Um, the, I all I asked for on the first book was for a Saul Bass vibe. And that that's a, he was a famous designer of movie posters and ads in the '60s. Especially, and you could look, you can Google him, and you'll you'll look at all of the freaking things he did. Um, and and one of the things he did is he worked a lot with with elongated silhouettes and bold colors like yellows and oranges and reds uh, against stark with stark black set against it. Um, and and that's kind of the vibe I wanted for the book because I, I just I just liked that tone, and I thought that the book's nar- narrative um, approach fit that kind of tone and vibe um and and they did a great job with the first book it had all the elements that that we wanted to to connote aspects of what what was going to be happening inside the book you knew it was not set in an urban jungle landscape you knew there weren't bullets and guns and all this stuff really involved um and 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 you knew that it was two characters who were investigating a mystery just based on the cover of the first book on this one we wanted to keep that vibe but have a very uh, a very unique visual that would connote the basic themes of the book uh, which I like I said earlier is is about marriage in suburbia and, and the wedding cake um, I, I, I originally suggested can we do something with wedding rings and one of them being like a, a blood pool or something like that but it wasn't gonna work um, they, they even tried a design aspect that didn't work, and, and they came up with the wedding cake, and it was fabulous. Um, to the point where, if you look, the, the, the crimson running down her gown is actually like blood, you know? Um, and, and I just love how stark that image is. And we kept the picket fence motif because we feel that that's a really, it's a really clean, simple visual um, that, that explains where we're setting these stories. You know, um, everyone in this country understands what a white picket fence connotes. You know, it connotes home ownership, suburbia, you know, the, all the placid, all-American middle-class things, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, so, so the wedding cake, the, the, the magenta blood, um, and, and the picket fence, I think pretty clearly connotes what, what the gist of the story is, um, and I, I was I was super happy. The first cover took us a lot of um, a lot of back and forth wrangling on different aspects of the, of the elements involved in it. This cover didn't. This cover was really quick because I loved the basic design that they gave me. Um, I, I did ask to have the picket fence added to it because I thought picking that up would be important. Um, and they agreed, and they folded it in really smoothly. I'm just, you know, I, I think it's a very striking cover. I, I think it flows nicely with suburban dicks if you have them side by side, which I, I did to look at them. Um, and, and yet, it still stands very cleanly on its own. Uh, each book stands very cleanly, stands very cleanly on their own. Um, 
uh, without necessarily looking at it and saying, here's book one, here's book two, uh, you still get a sense that they are of a piece. The other thing that I meant to mention with respect to this cover was, or were, are shadows of the tombstone of the bride on the wedding cake, and they're in front of each object, each figure. I don't know if that's supposed to help complement or go along with the fact that you've got the houses in the background in silhouette, like you mentioned. Yeah, I think um, again, you want you want to you want to connote that you know there's there's a murder here, something happened. Let, let's you want the reader to go. What has happened that has ruined this idyllic wedding cake imagery? You know, um, usually you're never as nervously hopeful about what the future brings as you are on your wedding day. Reality hasn't set in yet, um, and, and misery has yet to really set in on your wedding day. For the most part, it's just all all positives. The wedding cake connotes nothing but fun and positives um, and and. The you know the enjoyment of a wedding, the the, the hope of a wedding, um, the, the the themes of this book really are about the day to day exhaustion that exists in 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 very good normal human beings who have to kind of just chug along every single day. So now, and one woman, one woman in particular, who possibly might decide. I am sick of chugging along every day. So now, in regards to the book, you know, when you first had Suburban Dicks out, you weren't really doing, you were doing online uh, events and whatnot. Are you going to be doing uh, book signings in stores and whatnot, like uh, Barnes & Noble and whatnot? Well, Peter, tomorrow I fly to Houston. I have a store appearance in Houston at a, at a very popular um, mystery bookstore called uh, Murder by the Book. And then I fly out the next morning after my signing in Houston to Scottsdale, Arizona, to go to another nationally recognized bookstore called uh, The Poisoned Pen in Scottsdale, Arizona, on Thursday. Then I fly back on Friday. On Monday, I have a virtual event uh, with a bookstore in Seattle. And then on um, Tuesday of next week, is it Tuesday or Wednesday? I think it's Tuesday. I drive up to Madison, Wisconsin, uh, to a um, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm sorry, to, to Madison, Connecticut, to a um, uh, a really good bookstore there called R.J. Julia Booksellers, and I'll be appearing in person at R.J. Julia. I was going to go with Madison, New Jersey, so, too, but or Madison Square Garden. No, <laughs> no, uh, I will be at Terrificon uh, in, in July. Uh, I'll be tabling there. I'll have a booth. It's the first show I've done since last New York Comic Con. Um, and and um, I, I will be at Fan X in Salt Lake City on September 22nd through the 24th. Uh, I'll also be at New York Comic Con uh, again this year. And I will also be at Baltimore Comic Con appearing uh, on behalf of the Hero Initiative at their booth. Um, so, so the proceeds will go to the Hero Initiative charity, but I will also be selling copies of Suburban Dicks and The Self-Made Widow, along with my prints and autograph cards that I've had at my shows for a few years now. And we will be seeing you at Terrificon as well as New York Comic Con, but with uh, Terrificon, Eddie wants to make sure he gets a signed copy of the book. Of course. Okay, that sounds like a fair dinkum deal. 
Buy them both, get a special price, or just pay cover and get them both signed. Whatever whatever it takes. Yeah, I'm gonna have. I'll have a two for one thing. I'll I'll have a. I'll have a buy two books and it's a. It'll be a discounted price. I think I'm gonna. The price of the books will be discounted anyway because I'm. I'm gonna. I gotta. You want the books to register as book sales, so I don't want to buy comp copies of my own, which I can do. They send you X amount of comp copies, but I told Peter knows. And you're a Comic Con. I sold like I sold all 25 copies of the book I brought with me in less than a day. And then R.J. Julia booksellers had a stand, and I signed all their books, and I, they sold out of 25 in less than a day too. So I figure I could sell easily 100 plus copies of my books at the at the shows that I do. Um, and, and and as a, I don't, I'm doing it to make a profit. I, I I want I want to get the book in people's hands. So I'm gonna I'm gonna sell it like two for you know one for one for twenty two for you know two for thirty five or forty. I'll do something or something out where it incentivizes people to want to get the book because I'm not doing it to make money. I'll probably I'll probably get them at cost, but I'll buy them through a bookstore because that way they register as book sales. Have you considered? And then. And then every, you know, the bookstore will register those as official legitimate book sales because they were, they were purchased, and then I'll I'll sell them to to fans at the shows. Have you considered the book deal of buy two get books, and you get the two books? I think that's a great deal. You know, just win win all around. <laughs> Wait, you lost me. Buy two, and you get them both. You get the books. The person gets the books. They buy them and they get them. Buy two, I get two. I think it's a great deal. That's what I said before. Pay cover price or get a discount, whichever comes first. Pay cover price. And yeah, get the no, books. I, I, you know, you, I do that same stupid stuff with the prints. It's like you know, if you one print, well, I don't even know what I sell prints for anymore. It's been so long since I've done shows. If if one print is is twenty bucks, what what was it? I was selling. Wait, wait, yeah, two for thirty. It's like one, you know, it's I like do the, that. One, one, a print alone is twenty bucks, but if I two. if uh, if you do if you get two prints, it's thirty. So. There you go. I'll, I'll figure something out. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to fleece my fans. I just, you know, I just want to. I just want to bring them joy and happiness. My, and my sell whole, some books. My whole thing was like the style of a friend's ad he made for a uh, fake car dealership with myself and my best friend, the legendary Josh Rosengrant, with uh, FLR Motors. If you tell that, if you tell us you've seen this ad, we'll tell you we've seen it too. So. <laughs> Sounds pretty. Sounds pretty accurate. Thank you, Captain <laughs> that's, Obvious. Mm-hmm. That's that's fair advertising, what? isn't it? <laughs> Fabian, you want to talk a little bit about something uh, besides the book? And what I'm seeing here in the latest Marvel preview is you're uh, attached to Marvel's Voices Community Number One. Ah, is it number one? I thought it was the second one they were doing. That's Didn't what I'm looking at. But they call it number one. I thought they did one already. I don't know. Mm. Um, uh, they, they um. They asked me. It is the second one because they asked me once before to do this. The, it's the it's all um, it's all Latinx based creative people and and Latinx based characters. Um, they asked me to do one a year ago and and I I, I couldn't at the time time wise and schedule wise and and um, and I didn't really feel comfortable 
identifying myself that way because because I, I I don't identify identify myself that way. I, I feel like if I did, I'd, I'd be unfairly appropriating someone who has real cultural background in in Latinx. I I have fake cultural background in Latinx. I'm an immigrant to this country, but you know, other than my name, I'm pretty much as New Jersey as you could possibly be. You know, and I've been here since I was four years old, and I'm 60 years old now. So Wait, um, I, I felt uncomfortable doing that. Um, but but they asked me again, and, and that hadn't changed. The only thing that changes is that they just they just kept asking, and I was like, oh god, all right. But they really got me when they told me that that I could do Nova because mm. um, I really like Nova. I like the Sam Alexander version uh, as well as the Rich Rider version, obviously. But I like the Sam Alexander version a lot. And and when they told me I could do Nova, I was like, okay, I I, I could do this. And and so I wrote the seven page story for them. It. it it really became complete when Paco Medina was available to draw it. And cause I love Paco's work. I think he's fantastic. And, um, and he, he banged out this baby like in a week. It was great. Um, it was great to see the pages coming in. Um, so, so I'm in the book. I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm there. You know, it's nice. Um, I, I don't want to steal the thunder from other really deserving voices in the book. Um, many of them are younger creative people and, and they, they deserve the voice more than I do. Um, I hope that if my presence makes any regular comic readers check it out, that that's good for them because more people will get to see, you know, more people will read their work and give it a shot. Um, but, but anything from Marvel and DC now is really just based on a, on a, um, on, on an interest level in working with the editor or working with a writer or an artist or working on a character. Um, it, it's not, it's no longer like a, a, a quest for me to get to, to get to write something for either company. Um, and, and I realized in the last year and a half, I've probably turned down more little project offers from Marvel than I've, than I've accepted. Um, which I guess means that they'll uh, soon enough they'll stop asking me because they'll think I'll automatically say no, and, and that's not really the case. It's just a matter of so much of this stuff is editorially driven, and, and they they tell you who they want you to write and what story they want you to tell. And in nine times out of ten, I'm like, yeah, I'm not interested in writing that character or writing that story. It's not my story. So. Um, in in this case, Lauren and Sarah uh, were really good. The editors and and, and they both um, they both let me tell the story that I wanted to tell, um, and and did a bang up job editing that story, but not dictating a story to me. They also gave me a pretty wide range of characters I could have chosen from, mm -hmm. um, which was really nice of them to do too. Uh, it wasn't like an assigned character. Um, and, and and as a result, I, getting a chance to do Nova kind of cinched it for me. Well, that's excellent because otherwise, I totally, I think we both agree that you're approached by whomever, and we want you to write a story. Here's what you want. We want you to say, you know, no, that doesn't think. I don't think that's how it works. Yeah, well, you know what? It, it on and off, it's worked that way for years, um, and 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 on and off, it's worked that way depending on the individual editorial office involved. Okay. Um, there's been plenty of editorial offices that have dictated what they wanted their writers to tell all the way back to the 40s okay there, there wasn't there wasn't a book in in dc stable all through the 50s and 60s that was not strongly editorially controlled uh as far as story content was concerned 
Um, and even at my time at Marvel from 85 to 95, there were absolutely editors that, that dictated, dictated story to their writers far more than other editors did. Um, and, and, you know, depending on the situation you're in, you, you, you can work under either, uh, under either method. I'm just at a point in my life and in my career where I don't need to. So I would rather work the way I want to work. And that's, you know, if it's a specific book like this is that has a specific purpose, I wasn't going to write this book and ask if I could write Luke Cage, you know what I mean? Because I know that this book is Latinx characters done by Latinx creators. So I understood the parameters, but if there wasn't a character in the list they gave me that interested me, then the answer would have been no, you know? Um but, but, you know, luckily, luckily there was a character that interested me. I think last year it was a different editorial crew that made this offer to me, and the characters they were offering were kind of set in stone. These are the choices you have, and none of them interested me. So I said, okay, then I just won't do anything. Um, and that's how that worked out. You know, this time it worked out. I, 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 it worked out better. I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I wrote the story. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, an, it's nice to do that exercise again because... I cut my teeth on writing different length stories at Marvel, five page backup annuals, uh, backups to the annuals, eight page Marvel comics presents stories, six page or four page new universe backups. Um, that's how I cut my teeth getting, getting more and more opportunities at Marvel back in the late eighties and working for different editors. So they got to see, see, see how I handled my work. Um, so, so, Getting to do a seven-page story is, is kind of fun in its own way because it's a challenge. It, it forces you to have to be really concise with how you're structuring your plot and, and how you're presenting your information in your story. Well, in terms of uh, other work and appearances, and then I think we'll let you go. Not much we want to uh, continue, but other um, appearances, I guess, with what you're talking about, flying and signing so on, then... And I don't know if you've been to this show in particular, but we do recommend it also as the Garden State Comic Fest as one. That's uh, before Terrificon, but also in July. Uh, yeah, I think I've gone to that one before. That's not Is that the one up in um, Secaucus? Marstown. No, that's, uh, you're thinking of uh, East Coast. That is no Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I don't know that I've done that. Yeah, I, I, I got to be honest with you. I try to. I've avoided New Jersey shows more and more. I just, I just focus on New York Comic Con. Um, I, I, I found the New Jersey shows often just not not attended enough to to warrant the the weekend. You know, you it's, know what I mean. It's a go um, big or go home thing, kind of, right? Yeah, for me, it is. It's either one of two things, guys. For me, it shows. It's either a big show where there's thirty, forty thousand, or two hundred thousand people, and I know that I can draw X amount of a, of people from that crowd, or a really small show where I'm the only guest and two or 3,000 people are coming, but 80% of those are going to come see me at my table. You know? Mm, so, yeah. so those are my two preferences. I'm doing a one-day show in Augusta, Georgia uh, um, for this guy, uh, Carmen, Carmine, who does these one-day shows in these small little towns, and I've done them for him in the past, like Frankfurt and Fort Myers, um, and, and I do really well at those shows because I'm pretty much the only guest or the or the main guest of two or three and almost everyone who walks through that door to buy a ticket 
is coming is going to come see me whether they know who I am or not mm-hmm. just because I'm there it's like someone's here oh who is he I don't know but he's here okay so they come see me <laughs> so I do really well at those shows you know um so so the show I, I look I'm doing terrific on and it's a really really good comic book convention Hell one of the yeah. best straight out comic book conventions there are yep. nowadays in terms of its respect of comic book crea- creative talent and its display of them but I don't do that good at, at Terrificon. It's it's too much comic stuff, and it's too many comic book people, so I got too much competition. And and I draw less. I don't expect to do well at all at my table at Terrificon. But I'm doing it because I I, I haven't been back in several years, and, and my manager Spencer Beck's really involved with them. So so I, I agreed to do it because a couple of years in a row I said I wouldn't, and I backed out. Um, so this year I'm going to go, but I don't expect to do that well at the show. So I'm really, I'm really kind of finicky in particular about about the conventions I'm doing now. Um, and again, it's because I can be. Uh, I did a lot of shows because I needed that extra money, and my kids, you know, I was still putting kids through college, and but that's all done now, you know. Um, uh, the kids are done with college. I don't have tuition anymore. Yay! Yay! So, so I get, to, I get to, I get to make different choices for myself, you know. When it comes they to, don't... oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Peter. Well, when it comes to Terrificon, do you want me to walk up to your table wearing different hats, like each time? Yeah, yeah, that would help. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Might no, take... that, that probably no one would notice the scam. Yeah, Might you take... can buy multiple <laughs> copies of the book and then just walk around behind the booth, put it back in the box, and then walk <laughs> back around to the front, buy another copy with a different disguise, so everyone will think I'm selling truckloads of books. It's gonna take more than a hat. I think though, I understand a the point. Mustache, at least. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and some funny hat glasses or whatever. But I can understand the competition point of it. But maybe the ones that do show up for, for to you, come to you for Terrificon, you, I don't know if it crossed your mind. Maybe, well, these are real. These are the core fans that really may know my stuff instead of the casual ones that are just walking by. Yeah, no, but you got to understand I do better with the casual ones or just walking by because I got Deadpool. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I got Deadpool. That, that, that's the magnet for casual fans. The, the the ones who know me also know Jerry Ordway, and they also know John Beatty, and they also know Roy Thomas, and they're they're all they're they're going to be pulled and tugged between all of those people available to them at a show like Terrificon. And that's why nearby you know? is an ATM. <laughs> Imagine a tug of war with Roy Thomas. <laughs> no, I would never go to war with Roy Thomas. No, I respect a, him too much. A tug of war, not an arm wrestle. Yeah. I'm pretty sure even even with my advanced decrepitude and muscle loss, I could still take them. <laughs> well, I enjoyed the confidence like at the very end. I was like, well, we're going completely, oh, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> I could take them. I'm pretty sure I could take most people in the comic book industry over the age of 50-ish. Most, not wait, all. Wait, get on the phone. Get, get Joe Jusco. Joe just goes, he could be 100 and still kick my ass. Yep. <laughs> you know, like Ron Garney could be like 1,000 and he could still kick my ass. By the and way, look really handsome doing it, too. <laughs> Ron uh, told me to give you his regards. Oh, cool. I love Ron. Ron is, is one of the good ones. And he will be at Terrificon in Uncasville, Connecticut at the Mohegan Sun Casino from June, yeah, or July 29th through the 31st. Taking away all the fans who would normally be coming to my table. <laughs> Connecticut's <laughs> terrific, terrific, terrific. So any, <laughs> what was that? Eddie? I lost the correct wording. I'm sorry, Mitch. Uh, 
what other work, if any, besides what we already heard uh, is coming Next up? year, we'll see my debut image comic book called Free Agents, co-written with Kurt Busick and drawn by Stephen Mooney. Uh, we, we Issue one's being drawn now. Issue two is plotted. Issue three will be plotted after I get back from my book tour. It's kind of fun and cool to be doing an image book. Um, it, it's... Uh, Kind of a, I can't, I don't even know how to describe it yet. We haven't figured out how to describe it yet. Um, it, it's, it's a little bit X Force y, a little bit Thunderbolts ish, mm. and nothing like either one of them. Um, so, so it ought to be interesting. It's a, it's a group of, of interdimensional soldiers who have been fighting a gigantic interdimensional war and have found themselves stranded on earth now and and they they get stranded on earth as a result of having defeated or they think they defeated the giant big bad and losing their commanding officer in the process so they're stuck on earth they cannot get through the the breach and the interdimensional breach because they closed it off to prevent the bad guy from continuing his multi-dimensional conquering um and and now that they're here they find themselves asking who are we what are we how can we be soldiers if there's no war to fight what what can we be what what can we make of ourselves when we've never known anything but being soldiers and fighting um and and as a result they start to realize they can make a life for themselves um, and and pretty quickly after that, of course, the crap hits the fan, and they realize they may not be able to do that. But it's, it feels it's interesting to me. We're still feeling our way through it, but it, it has an early uncanny X Men vibe and feel to it. Um, a little bit of a Legion of Superheroes feel to mm-hmm. it. A little bit of GI Joe. A little bit of 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 X Force. Um, and. and and I like that. I like that we're. I like that there's a mix of a few different established tropes that you might recognize, but there's there's open opportunity to really see where these characters go. And, and just two plots into it, I'm really starting to get a feel for for these characters, and I'm and I'm liking them a lot because they're they're, they're an interesting mix. Um, so it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. It, it, I think it'll be a lot of fun and we're planning to do it as like six, six or seven or eight issue arcs, then take a breather so that we can catch up on the art and the writing and then another six, seven, eight issue arc if sales warrant. Um, and we, we know what we'd like to do roughly for the first three or four arcs. So it's like Justin back and forth talking between me and Kurt and, and, and shooting the breeze and coming up with ideas. We have, we have a, a nice flow to how we want to break their story down uh, moving forward. I, I, hope, I hope sales warranted to get that opportunity because I think it could be a fun book. And what's the idea as far as when readers can see this coming to their, as Peter would say, funny bookstore? I ain't committing to nothing. <laughs> I in no way, no how. You're dealing with with me, and my schedule is lazy. And you're dealing with nice. Kurt, and his schedule is Kurt. let's just call it adventurous. Um, <laughs> and we're dealing with Stephen Mooney, who has never really drawn a monthly book per se, much less a monthly team book. So I, I don't even want to pretend if it's going to take six to eight weeks to draw each issue. Um, I don't. I can't tell you how long it'll be before we have 
four to six issues in the can uh, that would enable us to go out and, and put it out there. Because the one thing we're both adamant about, Kurt and I, maybe me even more than him, I do not want to release issue one unless all issues in the arc are going to come out on time. Um, and and maybe maybe I, I feel a little bit burned after my experiences with Outrage the last year, my Webtoon digital comic, but I do not want readers waiting for the material. So I, I will strongly prevent that from happening. I do not want issue one coming out when issue three hasn't even been drawn yet, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. So we, we do believe we do believe that the book will launch in 2023. We are hopeful if Stephen is, is is able to maintain the pace. We are hopeful that we'd be able to try to launch it uh, maybe around summertime of next year. But I don't want to guarantee that in any way, shape, or form. Fair enough. Fabian Nicieza, the novice novelist, second book. <laughs> Self-Made Widow, the sequel to Suburban Dicks, both available from Putnam Books and from the author himself when you see him in person at a book signing or con near you. Thank you very much, guys. As always, it is a pleasure talking to the two of you. All right. After you said that so many times, it's a pleasure. I'm starting to think you mean it. <laughs> I do. Okay. Would I keep coming back on your show if I didn't enjoy it? I know. It? Then there's that, too. Yeah. I, well, I would have to. Yeah. I really like who would punish themselves that way? Well, somebody with selective me- remembrances, I guess. I don't know. That's actually, I, I, I might have forgotten the previous times I've been on the show. You're right. <laughs> Wait, which ones? It becomes like the Smallville character, the blur, you know. <laughs> wow, that's a reference. Thank I didn't you very much, guys. Thank you, Fabian. Appreciate it. And good luck. We want to see you at Terrificon. I'll see you at Terrificon, all right? For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Fabian Nicieza. And I'm Eddie Wilson, Excelsior. I honestly-